the class of 1989 at the College of Worcester. Thank you. We've invited some of our classmates to be on a panel to discuss what they're doing now and how Worcester has influenced them, uh, probably how you have influenced them as well. And I would like, my name is Elise Bonza Geither, and I would like to introduce our uh, faculty moderator for today. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce a faculty member who was very influential to me when I was here, Nancy Grace. Um, she is the director, currently the director of the Center for Diversity and Global Engagement and the Virginia Myers Professor of English. She graduated from Oberlin with her bachelor's degree in 73 and soon after with her master's and PhD in 81 and 87. She teaches a variety of courses here at the College of Worcester. Uh, many of you may remember taking some classes with her. Classes she's teaching now are within the departments of English and women's gender and sexuality studies departments. She was the winner of the Choice Top 100 title in 2004 for her work Breaking the Rule of Cool, and in 2007 for Jack Kerouac and the Literary Imagination. She's a specialty reader for college literature and the Journal of Western Literature, and has received awards and professional memberships from the MLA and the International James Joyce Society. She's also the founding director of the program in writing here at the College of Worcester, and a founding member of the Beat Studies Association and co-editor of the Journal of Beat Studies published by Pace University Press. So we're very lucky to have her here as the moderator for our panel discussion. So without further ado, Dr. Nancy Grace. Thank you, Elise. I do have to make one correction. While I would have loved to have graduated from Oberlin, I do not. <laughs> to Oberlin. I went to Otterbein, uh, an equally fine school. <laughs> uh, so, everything else she said sounds, sounded good. <laughs> uh, thank you all for coming and to, to you for inviting me. You all seem to be having an absolutely wonderful time. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion we'll all have about 25 years of changing the world. Now, quite truthfully, if this had been my 25th year anniversary and I was told that was the topic, I'd be a little intimidated. <laughs> uh, but the reality is we all change the world in many positive ways no matter what we do. Uh, we do not have to be George H.W. Bush, who became president uh, in your last semester at the college. Right? Uh, so, don't feel any pressure to contribute to the discussion. George H. George H. Yeah. Okay, I just have a couple little things to say about um, real experiences in learning and changing the world in education. And then we'll turn it over to our panelists very quickly. Um, 46 years and one day ago, uh, Robert Kennedy died. And there's, uh, well, of course, there are many powerful passages that he left for us, but there's one that I particularly like. He says, progress is a nice word, but change is its motivator, and change has its enemies. I'll just let you think about that for a while. Um, the next one is from Oscar Wilde. Education is an admirable thing, but it is well to remember from time to time that nothing that is worth knowing can be taught. So I can think about that one. And the next one's by James Joyce. I think some of you might have taken my James Joyce course. Better pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age. <laughs> you are all full of passion and glory. And I think the fact that we're here for this discussion uh, would make James Joyce very proud, actually, in terms of your education. So let's turn it over to your classmates. Uh, I'll introduce them very briefly, just by name, and then each of them will tell you a little bit more about their background, 
and reflect on some of the questions that Elise uh, presented to you uh, a few minutes ago. And then we're going to open it up, because Beth told me she and everybody else really wants this to be interactive. Uh, so we're going to make sure we can get as much information, questions, experiences, stories from all of you as possible. Okay? All right. Um, yes, that's right. <laughs> all right. Um, our first panelist is Sam Tamiwa. Second, Bianca DeSalvo. Third, Shelly Pearsall. And our fourth panelist is Paul Potts. So we'll start with Sam. <laughs> so I'm under strict orders from Dean to keep this light. Right? And he's still so, here. He's still here. Because, you know, he says people might leave if it's not light. So we'll try to keep it light. Um, and, so I work at an organization called the Asian Development Bank, and we're part of a group of banks that are called the Multilateral Financing Institutions, uh, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, uh, there's a European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And what we do is we lend money, uh, we give policy advice, and we provide technical assistance to development countries. So we provide assistance for education, healthcare. Uh, to help build roads, help build infrastructure. And when I was at the, when I when I started at ADB, I was an energy specialist, and I worked uh, uh, doing investments in energy, uh, in the energy sector, doing rural electrification, transmission line, power plants. And then uh, I was then asked to lead their clean energy work, trying to increase our lending and renewable energy and energy efficiency, uh, try to decrease greenhouse gas emissions reductions for climate change. And that's a big job in Asia, and we like to say at the Asian Development Bank. You know, the, the battle for climate change will be won or lost in Asia. And so that was a big push we had uh, at, the, at the ADB. And so I've been doing that. Now I'm the deputy representative for North America. U.S. is one of our largest shareholders. And so my job is basically to lobby in Washington and, and tell the story of what we're doing to Congress and to the U.S. So that's what I do now. Um, but Worcester was a very important part of this because, I, you know, many of you don't know this. I, I'm Indonesian. But I grew up in Laos and Thailand and Hong Kong and Singapore and I went to high school in upstate New York for a year and then I came to Worcester. And so I really didn't know my place. I didn't know who I was, where I really wasn't ready. And when I came here, I learned, I mean, there's a lot of you here that I were classmates with or lived in the you guys just always sort of had your shit together, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> that's my, my impression. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Freshman year uh, came in, all the money my dad had given me for books, I didn't buy a single book. Uh, all went to beer. <laughs> beer, beer. I'll be honest. I went to all my classes, I did, I did. I went to all my classes, but I, I didn't have any textbooks, and I, I took copious notes, and I would just take my exams. I would like just go to the exam. And I had straight C's my freshman year. <laughs> 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 so dad calls me home and said, Sam, come home, you know, it's the summertime. So I went home and, and at the end of the summer, I said, you know, so school's going to start. And he goes, you're staying home. So I was benched for a year. I stayed home. I had no, you know, you can't get a part-time job in Indonesia. And, 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 and so I just stayed home for a whole year. I think we had the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1978 edition. <laughs> and I read it from cover to cover, three times. So when I came back to Worcester, my sophomore year, you guys were all juniors. Um, my dad said I'd play for tuition, but, uh, but uh, everything else, you're on your own. So when I, when I came back, I worked in pots and pans upstairs. I worked as a janitor in the library from midnight to two in the morning. And I think that whole experience sort of, I, I really sort of grew up and became like, the rest of you with your shit. <laughs> um, and, and, and Worcester was more to me. After I finished Worcester and I graduated, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I had no family to go home to here. They're all in Indonesia. So I worked in the admissions office for two years. So, and that gave me another opportunity to transition from college life and to then get ready to graduate school and so on and so forth. And, and through all this, the friends here, the professors here, it was just a, a good place. And then finally on IS, um, there was a quest, there was a magazine, the Worcester magazine had an article about whether IS was 
relevant to us. And I, I did my IS on the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and what it did for the development of the region. And so and that helped me get a job in, in development. Um, I was applying for a job in Washington, D.C. after coming back from Indonesia to D.C. Uh, a long time ago. And there was a woman named Julie Ferguson who was a senior, our freshman year. And we, she interviewed me. We talked for three minutes. She found out I was from Worcester. And three minutes later, she offered me a job. So Worcester has been a good place for me. So, uh, <laughs> Hi there. So my um, Who are you? This oh. is Bianca DeSalva. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> so um, I'm Bianca DeSalvo and uh, it was described to um, to Nancy that my work is unique. What is it? Interesting and unique. Very unique group business. There you go. Okay. So, so what I am, what uh, my work is, is I am an interspiritual, which is a non-denominational counselor and a vision quest guide. And usually when I say that, people go, "What the heck are you talking about?" <laughs> so. So um, what I do is I help people reconnect with what really is in their heart, who they really are, let go of those things that either no longer serve them or that was never really theirs in the first place, and find a way to move forward in life so that they're feeling really whole, really balanced, and really like they're living a life that's meaningful for them. So one of the things that I do in the Vision Quest work is I take people out into nature and I give them time alone on the land. It's actually a practice that's been used for thousands of years by indigenous people all over the world. And so that is my unique new business. <laughs> um, my story to get to this place has been kind of interesting. Um, when I left Worcester, I was very clear my IS was on, um, it was uh, primate research at the Cleveland Zoo, and I was very clear that I was going to be an animal behaviorist. And I left Worcester and I went back to New York and I um, worked at the Bronx Zoo on a um, developing a species survival plan for the Malayan tapir. And then I worked at the um, Moat Marine Lab in Sarasota, Florida, working on the longest ongoing um, research project with Atlantic bottlenose dolphins that's uh, been going on for 25 years now. And uh, I also worked at the aquarium in Coney Island. And during that time, I, um, I realized I, that was before I was going to go to graduate school, because I needed to get a PhD if I was going to be an animal behaviorist. And um, I needed to get a job to bring in some money. So I thought, well, what is it that I really like to do? And I thought back to my time at Worcester and I realized that inside of the psychology program what I learned was that I really loved research. So I started thinking, what can I do that can make me some money that is research? Well, market research, that has research in the title. So maybe that's a good one. <laughs> So I um, looked for work uh, in marketing research, and actually, interestingly, the reason I got my first job was the same as you said. The person who was hiring had a brother who went to the College of Worcester, and that is the reason why I got the interview and ultimately why I got hired. Um, so I spent about 20, well, I spent about 15 years working in corporations. So I worked for corporations like Kraft, I worked for corporations like HBO, I worked for corporations like J.P. Morgan Chase, um, figuring out what it is that people wanted, and then um, developing business strategy, new products, new ideas, um, and marketing uh, campaigns, things like that. And, you know, there were two, I think, pivotal moments in my life that made me realize that while that was something I really loved, doing from the perspective of I love talking to people and finding out what they wanted and what they needed, so the research piece, um, there was something still missing for me. And that was 9-11. Um, 
And um, also when I was working for J.P. Morgan Chase, we merged with Bank One. And what I saw in the business was in both of those situations, um, people's masks fell off. And suddenly they were human again. And they were in a space doing a job, but being vulnerable and being real. And it made me realize how much of um, the work that we were doing and in the environment that we were doing it that we didn't think we could be ourselves. And that's what led me to um, seek new work. I still love research, and I still use research all the time um, in my workshops, and I'm working on a book um, as well. So um, that's a, a piece that I've never lost, but I think that Worcester has done a really um, great job at helping me, first of all, just embrace um, learning and exploring, uh, because I think this school is about that, and also really finding uh, the courage to um, share my authentic voice and help other people do that. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Shelly Pearsall. Thank you. Um, um, I'm a, a children's writer um, currently, and I also uh, visit uh, schools and do writing workshops with kids. Um, as I was looking at the title of the panel, um, 25 years of changing the world. I'm not really sure I fit under that. I don't think I've spent 25 years changing the world, but I have spent 25 years changing careers. <laughs> um, I've had a lot of different careers on the way to becoming an author. Um, and I thought I would share a little bit of that because I think it kind of, um, it, it, uh, it ties in with what a lot of the, um, a lot of what you're hearing today. Um, I, uh, I, I left Worcester and uh, worked for Cleveland Metro Parks as a historical interpreter where I got to write uh, programs for them. I was also a recycling character called Tin Can Tilly, so I went around to various schools wearing garbage on my head. <laughs> and there were times I thought, you know, I got a BA degree to wear garbage on my head. Um, you know, what am I doing here? Um, in hindsight, it was great preparation for what I do now, which is, you know, talking to school groups. And that, I kind of got my feet wet with that. But at the time, you know, I thought, where is this all going? Um, and so after a couple of years of working for the Metro Parks, I decided that I wanted to become a writer. And so I applied to um, MFA programs across the country, um, and I was rejected from uh, all of them. And uh, so that was kind of a wake-up call, that maybe it wasn't quite the time for that to happen. Um, and I went to school to, um, to get a master's degree and become a teacher. Because my next idea was, well, if I'm a teacher, I could write in the summer. And those of you that are teachers or are married to teachers know that that is an impossibility. <laughs> Nobody told me that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I went into teaching with the idea that this is what I would do and quickly realized this was, uh, while I loved teaching um, and especially loved teaching uh, reading and writing to kids, it was still not, you know, not exactly what I expected. So after um, four years of teaching in, the, in a public school classroom, I found a book on sabbaticals and how you prepare to take a year sabbatical. And so after a particularly rough fourth grade year of teaching, or fourth year of teaching, I went to my principal one afternoon and said, um, well, I have this idea for next year. Um, I'd like to take a sabbatical. And I mean, he, he looked at me as if I had completely lost my mind. Um, and he said, well, first of all, what is this sabbatical? So I had to, you know, I explained, well, it's a year off. He said, you mean we, you, you want us to pay you for a year off? To, I wanted to write a book. To write a book? Like, no, no, it's an unpaid year off. He said, well, what are you going to write about? I said, I don't know. I just want to write a book. Um, I, I must have been convincing enough because they gave me a, a year off from teaching unpaid. Um, and in order to write a book, it ended up taking two and a half years. Um, by the time I was finished with that book, I was living in a room in my parents' house. I had $70 left in my savings account. Um, and, you know, I was really, my back was at the wall. And that was the point when I was able to sell a first book. Um, and I like to share that because um, I think many times to make a, a dream happen or something that we really believe in, you really do have to have your back against the wall. That This is the only thing you want to do and you're willing to give everything to make that happen. Um, interestingly, that parallels IS. Um, <laughs> because, uh, I didn't realize this till later, but in thinking back on it, I guess I should have learned a lot from that because I didn't really, st I, I did a creative IS, I wrote stories, um, uh, a set of stories for it, and I was not able to come up with an idea until I believe it was January. And I was really, you know, petrified that I wasn't going to graduate if I didn't write anything. And, you know, my back was against the wall, and that was the, the point when I finally started writing. Um, so I've been a writer ever since uh, that moment. Um, 
with that first book. Um, and I have five books now, and I spend about half my time in, um, in schools uh, trying to get kids uh, interested in writing, um, trying to inspire the creative folks among us. Uh, I didn't meet an author until here at Worcester, and so I want to make sure that kids get the chance to meet an author, have lunch with me, ask any question they want to ask, how much money do I make, you know, can you make a living at this? Uh, I really like to meet kids one-on-one, -on -one, and it's important to me to, uh, to do that. I've been in that business for about 10 years, 10, 12 years now. Um, but I think what's, you know, kind of moving, I'm looking at change again, I guess. <laughs> Never stay in one thing for a long time. But um, I think now what I've gotten very interested in is just seeing the variety of schools in this country. I've had the chance to see public and private schools and rural schools and small schools and large schools and just seeing what makes a school work and what doesn't and the, the leadership that it takes to run a school. And so I'm kind of moving more in uh, that direction as well um, in how do I share that knowledge and what makes an, you know, an excellent school with others. Um, having had this opportunity for, for 10 years. So that's the journey to uh, writing a book. Let me just say there you go. Before you start, sure. I'm going to change this up just a little bit. Sorry. Please? No, that's fine. Who was the author you met, Shelly? Uh, the, uh, here at Worcester, actually a couple of them. I don't know if any if you all remember. Um, I've been told we had Alex Haley, we had Je well Jesse we Jackson, um, we had... Um, uh, of course, Kurt Vonnegut, who's yes, an Vonnegut. unforgettable author, um, and I was trying to, Bobby Ann Mason, um, I've, I don't know if this is true uh, or not, but someone has told me in the years since that we were very fortunate in the years we were here that there was some sort of foundation that was funding the speakers that we saw. Is this John, John Barth, is who you're thinking of, freshman yeah, year? Yeah, I don't remember mm. this freshman and year. And there might have been the Rubbermaid yeah. Foundation, and those were years when... We had outs we I mean, outstanding. outstanding. Yeah, it was. I mean, very memorable. It was one of the highlights for me of, of Worcester, definitely. <laughs> okay, Paul Potts. Thanks. Um, I'm so gratified to hear that uh, I'm not the only one who didn't have his shit together because <laughs> I didn't have a straight road, a straight career path. And I, I was expecting to be like the, the odd man out here, but it's 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 really good to hear the stories and understand that everyone has had a, a winding road. Um, I did write something. I want to talk about how my College of Worcester education prepared me for a future that has turned out to be completely unlike the future it prepared me for. <laughs> <laughs> and as, as far as I see it, the most important feature of, of this future, which is now the present, is the upcoming collapse of industrial civilization. So, this may not be too cheery, but uh, I hope, you know, I'll do my best here. I was not a very diligent student. Um, I was in some classes, but I spent a lot of my time pursuing uh, my own interests, like I learned Macintosh programming and C programming and things like that, mostly on my own time. And that was really great for my career, and it got me into an internship and all that, but it was not so great for getting class work done. And I, I didn't study a whole lot. Uh, I'd like to formally apologize for to the professors that I disappointed the most. <laughs> um, some Dr. Christensen, Dr. Fry, Dr. Gray, Dr. Hayden. Um, yeah, I think you guys really deserved a better student. I did good work for some of you, but some of you, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I've done a lot of interesting work. Uh, Right out of college, I got into uh, designing multimedia software for uh, an educational group at the University of Michigan, the Office of Instructional Technology. I've done software development, technical writing, I've done a little bit of management. Uh, I su I've succeeded at doing a lot of things that, I, since I only had a minor in computer science and I was an English major, uh, at doing a lot of things that I wasn't on paper qualified to do, and that's been hugely empowering. So that includes like very low-level programming with the kind of people that have PhDs in electrical engineering. But yeah, here I am doing it, you know, so. Um, outside of, it turns out that even a minor in computer science in Worcester, I didn't quite realize this at the time, um, was, uh, was really pretty rigorous. <laughs> so I did learn a lot. Um, but I, I don't know that Worcester has opened a lot of doors, because when I would tell people I went to the College of Worcester, I'd say, Rooster? Is that some sort of agricultural school? <laughs> Um, I've also been a blogger, a musician, a podcaster. I've done a lot of sort of uh, outside projects too, and done a, a lot of writing since, since school, even if, if it's not uh, in the form of stuff that's been published formally. So, and a lot of the podcasting and uh, music production work that I enjoy getting into goes back to work I did at the radio station, WCWS Worcester. Uh, in 2010, after 20 years in Ann Arbor, 
my wife Grace and I had given up on the idea that we could afford a home and raise a family there. Um, Grace's mother was living up in Saginaw. We wanted our children to be able to spend time with her. Saginaw is in rough shape, uh, but the city has wonderful old neighborhoods with strong bones. So I got permission to work from home and we bought a house in Saginaw that would have cost three quarters of a million dollars in Ann Arbor. So uh, we wanted space for homeschooling our family. Our oldest has left home, but we still have five young children at home, ranging in age from eight months to nine years. And we're turning our city lot into a full-blown permaculture food jungle. <laughs> so when it works right, uh, we don't weed and we don't add any water other than rainwater. Um, we excavated trenches in our lawn and filled them with logs and wood chips and compost. These are called hugelkultur beds and it's practiced in Germany. It's a green uh, gardening technique. Uh, they've worked very well. We grew an enormous amount of food. Um, this year we put in nine new raised beds and we're planning to set up hoop houses in the fall so that we can extend the growing season and grow greens into the early winter. And I want to make it clear that uh, this is a lot of fun. I mean, I, I got, you know, some, had a lot of fun time shoveling compost, but um, <laughs> uh, we're not really doing it for fun. Uh, we believe that a local food ecosystem is absolutely critical to our family's long-term survival. When I was six or seven years old, I read a novel called Dartalum, Stranger from a Distant Planet, written in 1973 by James Berry. And the plot involves uh, catastrophic sea level rise due to global warming. So the science actually goes back to uh, starting Arrhenius in 1896. This year, my activism has centered entirely around the issue of climate change. We are already feeling the effects. We just suffered through a, a pretty insane winter in Saginaw, and the Great Lakes still have ice on them. I believe uh, things will get much faster, uh, much worse, much faster than the mainstream science is predicting. The IPCC predictions are way too conservative, and it will not uh, change smoothly. We'll have sort of a, a lot of tumultuous weather. Um, so preserving our civilization will require an intensely local struggle to help our libraries, schools, and institutions adopt. Uh, I, uh, you have to recall like the way that monasteries preserved culture and learning or the way that Cuba survived post-oil embargo when they had to turn to a local food production economy. Uh, moving to a local low-carbon life will be challenging for people like me who have spent their entire working lives commuting and who come home with clean hands. Uh, we will need to get out of our class-based comfort zones. I still do computer work every day to pay the mortgage, but we've passed peak oil, peak concrete, peak plastic, uh, peak phosphorus and probably peak microchips. So I don't think I'll be able to do that kind of work much longer and there will be no miraculous green technology <laughs> fix. So get rid of your commute if you can, work from home or move closer to work. Some urban centers with public transportation and good water infrastructure may survive. Coastal and southwestern cities will not. Establish a victory garden, start stockpiling and rotating staple foods and learn canning. Establish a compost pile, capture the rainwater from your roof, study permaculture, find or start a local farmer's market and a CSA. I'm not really saying you will have to grow all your own food, that's not a realistic option for most people, but food from California and Peru and China will not be available. Your garden and your local farmer's market and CSA represent an existential threat to the status quo, and as such they are among the most subversive acts you can undertake. So accepting a seemingly unbearable truth can be the beginnings of action and hope. I recommend listening to the talk by Chris Hedges called The Myth of Human Progress and the Collapse of Complex Societies. Then use your Worcester education and your sense of empowerment to do what needs to be done. So we're gonna open up to a panel discussion. We are, yes, and let me just begin that by saying it's fascinating and gratifying to me to hear the common threads and recognize the common threads through these stories uh, that fit so well with you know, the Worcester mission, uh, particularly being lifelong learners, not being afraid of change or engaging with the fear of change and moving on. Uh, creative thinking, definitely, and thinking about diversity and global engagement and how we're all connected in the world. So uh, you know, all the work you have done represents what we're doing right now for the next generation to continue the work you're doing now. And 
It's really gratifying for a professor to hear that. So thank you all. Um, we don't want this to be just Q&A, Q&A. But if you do have questions for the four panelists, or if you want to tell your own story, we'll be glad to hear those. So I don't know how you want to start. I, I know a few people in the room. <laughs> So I can call on you. <laughs> um, Libby? Is Libby here? And then I'll call on Jess. Oh, Helen here. So stand up, tell us your name. If you want to come up here and talk, that'd be great. David Llewellyn. Um, I am a I am a mercenary writer. I, <laughs> I I work for the Journal Sentinel as a copy editor. I don't expect that job to last, so I freelance a lot. And I'm interested, Shelley, in what you've been doing. Um, I met a woman a while ago in Milwaukee, where I live, who is a who, who makes a living writing novels, Joyce novels for, I don't think it's Harlequin, but they're romance novels. And I, at one point in my life, would have turned up my nose at that. Now I just say, wow, you make a living writing, good for you, I'm proud of you. Um, my, own, my own attitude toward writing, when I was young, I, I never wanted to write fiction. I wanted to be a political columnist. I wanted to tell the world my opinions about the, the great issues of the day. Now, my, friend, my, my saying is, you put money in and words come out. So Shelly, when you're in your parents' bedroom, there's $70 in your checking account, yes. and you have something that you want to say, okay. how do you reconcile the creative urge and the need to make a living? Uh, I, I think you have to find the, uh, the balance. Um, I mean, most authors uh, t uh, put together their writing with some other <laughs> career. Um, and really, my second career is working with schools. So that is my, I guess, uh, consistent source of income. Um, vis I visit about 40 schools a year. Uh, as an author, so um, that's you know definitely income I can count on. Whereas obviously the book money goes up and down depending on if you have a new book, if it's successful, and all that. Um, I guess the way I look at the uh, try to reconcile the whole idea of doing us doing something creative for money. I mean, this is what I live on. So obviously, I do have to make you know I have to make money off of, of a creative uh, uh, creative activity. Um, but I just, you know, I, I try to always be honest in what I write, and, and I, I mean, there's obviously things I could write that would probably be uh, better sellers, but I, I think people can see through that, and I, I've always tried to just write from my heart and hope that, you know, I can make a living doing that, and so far, that has worked out. Um, you know, I'm not John Green or, um, <laughs> or some of the, you know, the big names, but, you know, I definitely can, you know, uh, you know buy pizza and, and earn a living from it. So, so, yeah, I just think you have to, you know, you have to be honest in your writing, because otherwise, um, you know, you're, you're not going to last in that career and people are going to be able to, be able to see through that. Um, one thing I remember Peter Havholm saying, I, I had the chance to work with him here at Worcester writing um, articles for the um, Worcester Alumni Magazine. He said, uh, after reading one article that I written, he said, you can't sit on a fence, Shelley. You know, you have to take a side, you have to make a decision, you have to, you know, make a choice. And so I think I've always kind of had that in the back of my mind when I write too, that I don't want to sit on the fence. Uh, you know, I have to, I have to do what, what, what's important to me. If there's anybody else who wants to talk first, that would be fantastic because I have all this businessy stuff to yeah, do and I would true. walk right into that after I talk. Sure. So if we have somebody else and then I'll tell my story at the end. Is there anybody else? Come on. Are we done? Questions for the panel. Any questions for the panel? Okay. Um, so you have your name today, especially where you're having a lobby Congress and having worked through the circles of DC that mm -hmm. you know, continue to circle. 
I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about what do you find works? What do you find about the attitude of the people there? From, from being a guy who doesn't go to DC, reads about, you know, what he hears about on NPR and stuff about how it is or is not working, how productive they are or are not, right? And the work that you do reflects a lot of that situation and what you see going forward. Right. Thanks, Rob. Um, there's, you know, there's a really ugly side to DC that, that, that I've learned about, right? So when I first got there, I had a good friend of mine. He was a deputy assistant secretary of the State Department, and then he took me out to lunch, and he took me out with a lobbyist from a firm, Patton Boggs. I don't know if you know Patton Boggs. If you ever watched the words, the movie Syriana with, uh, and, and they basically pulled off a coup that was Patton Boggs. Anyway, I hope nobody here worked for Patton Boggs. And actually, it dissolved last week. Uh, he was telling me a story about how Hillary Clinton wanted to give Indonesia old F-16 fighters. And, um, but there was one person in, on the Congressional Appropriations Committee that did not want to give Indonesia these F-16s because they have a, their military have, has a bad human rights record. So this person said, well, uh, Secretary of State really wants to give these planes, so what do we do? And so she, he called up Boeing because these planes needed about $400 million of rehabilitation before they could go. And he called Boeing and got Boeing to lobby its congressman and its, uh, its senator. And so to tell this person's boss, to tell him to approve these planes being given to Indonesia. And, and that's how Washington works. I'm at the very core, that's how it works. So that's how I learned to work. It worked. And I knew that's not where I wanted to go with, um, with what I was doing and what we were doing. Um, and I knew I just, you know, and, and as a development organization, we, we, we did not want that to be our work. So, um, so I have not taken that route. We haven't taken that route. Um, right now we're engaged with a big, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, getting, uh, increasing our capital, uh, our, our general capital at the, at the Asian Development Bank, and we need congressional approval for that. Um, and the way I, we've worked it is to work with, uh, and to stay outside of the lobby organizations, I actually work with think tanks in Washington, and that's a very good group of, of people, and, and from all parts, because the think tank community is very, very influential. You have those that agree with you, you have those that don't agree with you, you have all colors and, and, and spec of the spectrum there, and, and work through them. Um, and if there are things that you do that, really, really, that they really, really like, then they will champion your cause for you. So for example, one of the things we did in Afghanistan was we built a railway line from Uzbekistan down to Kabul. Uh, we brought a transmission line in from Uzbekistan to Kabul, and the US government was paying about five, six million dollars a day for diesel to electrify Kabul. So we did that, right? And so, uh, you know, um, now we have electricity coming in from Kabul, we are bringing in rail so that you don't have to bring in all the, the, um, uh, the supplies in by truck. We've also helped uh, increase electrification from 6% 20 years ago to 30% in Afghanistan today. So that's a good story that goes on well with Congress. With electrification, you can have more schools, you can have uh, better clinics. And so that resonates with Congress. And, and so I think for us, telling good stories in Washington to the people that matter is the way we've taken it rather than doing the, the other way. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Just touch upon part of my experience as well, if I can borrow the mic from Seth. Um, I was not a computer scientist. <laughs> I remain not a computer scientist. Nor a mechanical engineer. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Josh Barr. Uh, I graduated with you all in 1989. And I say for those of you who don't know, quite a few people know me, but I've always been a dilettante. Um, in all the cliques and clubs and groups, I've floated between them. Um, the closest I got to being a, a clip was with the Greeks in the basement of Babcock. And that's because I lived with them. Uh, and they were a fun crowd. The real Greeks. And I was, a, I was a member until the moment they started speaking Greek. And aside from a few swear words, I was at a, I was at a loss. <laughs> so as I said, I floated between. I'm oftentimes that fence sitter. And being a fence sitter is not the most comfortable thing in the world. You want everyone to be happy. You want people to get along. But you also have opinions. And I'm talking about this because Sam's talking about this, the ugly part of Washington. And he also mentioned the, 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 the upside of Washington. You know, the, he was talking about think tanks and the positive things. And what I want to encourage you all to think about is that we are all part of that Washington environment. We've been at home, whether or not we're in Washington, it doesn't matter. I work at a, 
in Rochester now. I lived there for about 11 years. And uh, my main job is working with RIT. And I went there because of that reason, Rochester Institute of Technology. And I went there primarily because I had the opportunity of teaching first-year students how to be good students. And um, I liked it. It was a great thing. Now, I did that for like eight years, and finally, oh my god, they never learn. You know, they never learn. <laughs> <laughs> like, you laugh, but it's true. Uh, and so I moved on to a new role. Uh, I was encouraged to move on to a new role because they wanted me to try a new thing. And I originally used to write grants. And if any of you, anyone, raise a hand if they ever wrote a grant. If anyone wrote a grant? Oh, you know, you know. Uh, it is a very frustrating process. I have a few successful grants out there. They're all the little ones. I get the little ones. It's the big ones that are kind of problematic. That's why I'm in the Rochester. I got this job. It's a great place to work. When we went there, Catherine and I, Catherine is class in 1990. There's a great story there. I won't go into it. Essentially say, we were friends. We weren't together. She got married. I went to the wedding. It wasn't my wedding. <laughs> we tried again. Went to my wedding, and she was there in her wedding. It was great. That worked out well. <laughs> We've been together for about, oh, 15, 14, many years. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm blanking on them. Pretend I got the career right. We were, for X number of years, they've been great. So we got together. We um, have children, went to Rochester, and we picked a neighborhood. We were looking for a place that would be a good place to live. Rochester at the time, if anyone paying any attention to it, had some challenges. 11, 12 years ago, it was the number one place in the world. It was a great place to raise kids. still is, but it doesn't have that, that cachet that it used to have back then. We look for a great neighborhood. We show up in a great neighborhood. They have a wonderful neighborhood organization. We get involved. Six months in, I say, oh, I'll volunteer. So I volunteer. If you're going to get some help, that was a mistake. Because I said, I'm willing to serve as a vice president. Within a while, Two to four weeks, the current president was moving out of town uh, to go to a nice uh, place, uh, new uh, schools, a better school system. So all of a sudden, they said, could be president. I did that for four years, and they have, they have term limits. I'm all, all in favor of term limits, because after four years, I had an excuse. They said, no, no, we don't have to pay you the bylaws. Yes, we do. Uh, and so this is going on. The president had to meet it for four years, and the president had him there for four years. And the reason I'm talking about this is because being involved in a naval organization, you have to work with the city, you have to work with the county, and you start seeing some of the inside deals, the bad behavior, the stuff you hear about Congress happens in every town. But it doesn't happen when people start paying attention to what's the right thing to do, even if they're wrong. If their intention is right, it goes a long way to making sure that people abide by the rules, even if it's quicker and more efficient. Much corruption is a result of trying to be efficient. We don't need approval. We know it works. Oops, they've just broken the rules. Okay? And that happens a lot. So nowadays, and the reason I can talk about this a little more knowledgeably, is I actually decided to get into politics because of the neighborhood experience, <laughs> social experience. I ran for office, got slaughtered. I got killed. I lost. <laughs> but I did it well. I mean, I, I, I failed, but I, I found out politely. I found the candidates I liked not quite as much as myself, but okay, I support you. I supported them. I ran for office again, and now I'm a county legislator. Been there for about three years now. I'm in the minority. Um, and for the, I live in New York State, upstate, in a county that's predominantly Democrat, and I'm a Democrat, and I'm in the minority. Not just a, a little minority. We're talking like uh, 29 seats. We got 10. Um, this is a very small minority. We can just barely block um, funding bill. Barely, if we're all on board. But the only thing about Democrats, they have it all. And so we have some challenges. But what we learn, both as Republicans and Democrats, we have good intentions. We only make mistakes in the bigger schemes when we forget the opposition has good intentions as well. And even when they don't, they're not the only ones. There are good people out there. So I just wanted to say, I felt obliged to say it, is that just because Congress looks bad, and God knows it does, we have the same challenges at home that we have in Congress. And Congress can do a better job. Yes, it can. And someday again it will. But we have to remember it starts at home. And so do good work. You don't have to be a politician. You don't have to do anything like that. But do good work. Help your neighbors out. Do good stuff and things will get better. And now I'm gonna go sing Kumbaya because I just <laughs> <laughs>
Institutions like Worcester always change uh, and do attempt to keep traditions and programs that are effective. Uh, right now, Worcester, both its academic and its student affairs programming are going through some major changes. And we're always interested in knowing from our graduates what programs, what experiences you found to be the most formative, the most powerful. Because if we don't know what those are, then the faculty might just go ahead and cut it. <laughs> uh, again, thinking good intentions, but doing the wrong thing. So I'm personally interested in your thoughts 25 years later about what really worked in terms of your education. And not just in the classroom, but other places in terms of developing uh, all, all of you as adults who are real change agents and passionate individuals and creative thinkers. So is there anything you would not want us to get rid of? Or is there anything you would like us to get rid of? What, what was that? The climbing wall. The climbing wall, <laughs> get rid of or have it. <laughs> do they still do the leadership symposium? That, no, no, we do not have that leadership symposium any longer. Did any of you participate in that? Yeah, that was excellent. Uh huh. Yeah. And I'm not sure why we don't have that, but our graduate qualities do now focus on leadership. Uh, we talk about that a lot. We encourage students to take part in activities. And educational programs to develop leadership. Um, so it might be good to think about bringing mm. that back. Mm. Yeah. First year seminar. Mm. We still have it. Mostly, the, the seminar is very different now. Um, mm. When you took first year seminar, you all read a core book. Similar books, right? Yeah. And we had a topic. We did like thread of life. It's different now. The first year students have summer reading, so they all read that in the summer, the first years. But the individual faculty members now construct the topic for the course. And then the students choose what they're interested in, and they have some say in determining a topic that they feel engaged in. So for example, this year, my topic is going to be sports and social justice. Um, I taught it four years ago, and my topic was um, Republic of Dreams, American Bohemias. And we focused on Greenwich Village in Key West. Yeah, I, the dean would not give me the money for the field trip. <laughs> no, she really wouldn't. Uh, but it's still focused on writing, and there are speakers that are coming in. This year, for example, Amy Tan will be coming, and so we're very excited about that and some others. Um, so that we've not gotten rid of, but that works very well. During our first year, there was liberal studies, which is that core. Right. We also had probably um, eight other first year study sections that were more like what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I think we, you were, they we were, were pilots. In, it, was a, it was a mix. Mm -hmm. I think that was the pilot stage. Right, right. Well, that program's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's going to stay here. Yeah.
And actually the faculty, uh, in collaboration with the administration and the board of trustees, have begun conversations about that. Yeah. Um, there's never a perfect fit, but there are always things that we can do to make sure that the student gets the best mentoring experience possible. So that is one of the major topics that uh, the board, the administration, and the faculty are now engaged in. But, yeah. One thing outside of the classroom, the mm. large international contingent that uh -huh. is here, for those yes. of us that are right. white uh, from small towns near here, uh -huh. uh, this part of Ohio, that was probably, for me, that was one of the most informative mm -hmm. things and has shaped my life in many mm -hmm. great ways. Right. Is Jorgen here? Jorgen Marcel? Do I just talk briefly about our incoming class of international students? Jorgen is our assistant dean for international student affairs. Hi, can everyone hear me? Yes. Yeah. So first off, this fall will be the largest class of international students in Worcester history. We're looking at the good news. The bad news is the person in charge of recruiting that class has left. <laughs> so we're now in the process of looking for someone to replace that person. But if you know anyone, make sure to keep an eye out on the Worcester webpage for that job description and they apply. The breakdown is, as we're looking at it, over the last three years, I've been at the college for two, but over the last three years, our largest increasing segment of the international student population is actually our Vietnamese students. Uh, they've been growing in leaps and bounds, and by this year, will be our second largest group behind China. Uh, we're bringing in 22 freshmen from China this fall. Uh, followed by India and then Vietnam. Uh, so again, that's, those are the areas that we are significantly, we have solid populations, they come with their challenges, which we will be addressing. Uh, where we are struggling, for some of you, I don't know how it was in the 80s, is we're losing our populations in South America. We don't have those numbers. We are on the, we have lost our Jamaican population. As of this year, our last Jamaican student has graduated and we will be at zero Jamaican students as of this fall. Uh, and our African population is quickly growing. Those are the areas that uh, in the next year we're going to be focusing on. If anybody has any ideas, connections, uh, I'll be talking to Sam afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I like it. it that you're sitting there. That I'm uh, but yeah, so I'd love to hear anything on that front. But we're really excited about this small class. Well, as you can imagine, it's about resources. And you go where you tend to get the most deals, which has historically, uh, in the last five years, and nationally, really, the trend is for So it's about resources, and it's about one of the arguments that I've been trying to build is where we cannot expend the same amount of resources, we need to utilize the alumni that are on the ground to find those students. And so that's kind of the direction we're trying to go in those smaller markets where we can have centers and I'll add to that that in this uh, entering class, we have, I believe it's 21% domestic students of color, and that's a class of around 540 students. So that's a, a, a huge change, increasing the diversity of the college student body, and our uh, admission staff has worked very, very hard in that area too. Um, so those are some things that I mean, fit very well within the understanding of Worcester that you know, the traditions of Worcester, and we're putting more emphasis on those as best we can. I'll put in one other plug. We've been uh, host family for international students the last couple of years, and we got an email this week saying that we're just really big class, and we're really looking for uh, more host families. So if you haven't lived in the area, not mm -hmm. so much if you're far away, but if you're a little <laughs> <laughs> drive to Worcester and close enough to do things like have the student over for holidays or come take them to dinner or lunch. Uh, I highly recommend it. We have had such a good time. Our student group, so 
our first student was from India, and she actually didn't return, but now she's at college with our nephew who lives in India, which is hysterical. And, um, our second year, we have a student from Great. Well, I think Libby wants to talk now. <laughs> Our baby dog. But thank you all so much. And it's been wonderful. Um, I, when I left Worcester, I worked at a law firm for 10 years doing recruiting. So I was using my psych background every single day, dealing with attorneys with problems and helping look at their resumes and decide who we were going to hire. And it was a great job. And I met my husband there. And we have three great kids. Um, and then we had our second child, and I decided to stay home. And I've been home for 15 years now. And Every single day I go through, should I go back to work yet? It's not time yet. When should I go back to work? Because I know it's coming. And my oldest is 17 right now. My youngest is 12. So probably six or seven years from now, I'll have something else to talk about besides just my kids. But um, Worcester has been the greatest foundation for my life, I would say. It's been fantastic. My parents went here. It's just a big part of my life. and. I feel like I'm very fortunate that A, I get to stay home and take care of my kids, and B, that I had the time to help organize reunion. Because if I was working, I wouldn't be standing here right now. So this has been a fantastic year working with Beth and working with our committee, and that's my story. Beth's going to go now. <laughs> specifically about um, the questions we asked our panelists were about how Worcester prepared them for this life that they're living and how in big ways or small they're changing the world and um, I'm in ministry I work in a United Methodist Church doing adult education and congregational care but I spent a decade doing editorial work for um, a theology journal in Columbus um, but when when we were here my family completely fell apart and so for me, if it, if it weren't for people like Libby and Daphne and Gordon Tate, um, I, don't, I tell people, I, I don't think I would have made it through my life without the ways that they surrounded me and shored me up and supported me. Um, I graduated in four years. I still sometimes think how unreal that was, given what was going on in my family at the time. And so for me, the biggest impact that Worcester had on me was, um, I think, um, among a couple other things, put in me a deep desire to be a caring, shoring up person for other people. Do you know what I mean? And so for me, working in ministry, working in a church is, I, like it started here. It started in my home church growing up and all that kind of stuff, but it started here with the ways that Daphne and Libby and Dr. Tate took care of me when I was here. So that's what I'm doing, and it's, that's all. <laughs> business. Not everyone was here last night, so we want to start with introducing the people who are on the committee. And if you guys can just stand up and take a bow when we call your name. Um, Daphne is our class secretary. And the rest of the committee just all stand up as I call your name and then we'll all clap at the end or we'll be here forever. Megan Hensley Batia, um, Dean Economist somewhere in the back. Erica Faderman, who could not make it here. She's got a family reunion, but she was very helpful. Elise Bonza-Gaither, who is wherever she ended up. Um, Brian Johnson, Sally Crosser-Maxwell, Mary Hunt Precop, 
Oh, Mary's back there. Yay. Um, Nancy Nystrom Stansberry. I don't think she could be. Oh, she had to. She had to do an SAT thing, right, with her son. Sam Tumiwa, stand up. Oh, you're standing. <laughs> and I'm not going to get Johan's last name right, so somebody help me out, Johan. Thank you. And David Zach, who is in the back next to Mary. So thank you guys all. Zach, 
They're all three are willing to either co-serve or or one of them, and we could have an election, or they could serve together. Beth Ann sort of said she would do it if nobody else wanted to. I mean, it's sort of wishy-washy. So, <laughs> but everybody, all of them said they would do it, and right. they would be happy to do it by themselves, or they would be happy to do it as a group. So, so we're entirely not sure whether we should have an election or we should just. <laughs> I would like to nominate Mary and, and David by unanimous proclamations to the year. <laughs> There's also that we, we technically should ask whether there are any nominations from the floor. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, know you're all, we know you're all shy because you can't live up to us, right? <laughs> Not. Think about it, it's really fun. It is. <laughs> okay, so I think we have two new presidents. Yippee! but we have to buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can go back to chatting amongst yourselves. We're all glad you're here. What? What'd I forget? What'd I forget? What'd I forget?